Hi, everyone. Welcome to This Much I Know, the Seed Camp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. On today's podcast, we're going to be covering the economy. Now, the economy is obviously very complicated, and one of the things that helps me better understand it, and by the economy include everything from the stock market to geopolitics and the, the movement of money. The best newsletter that I receive every day is one from Finimize. With me, I have Max Rafaga, CEO and founder of Finimize, and Carl Hazely, who's the VP of content. And we're going to be covering what makes up the economy, how it affects you, and how it affects startups and people who want to invest and manage their money. Welcome, guys. All right, thanks. Hi, right, thanks for having us. Thanks again for coming up with such a great product. I, as I mentioned, I receive it every day. I think two days ago, I had this uh, interesting newsletter from you that implied that you know we're out. And I love how you guys have these sort of very inflammatory uh, subject lines, and then you get to it, and then it's, of course it's about a company and, and a couple of things like that. So well done on making sure that content that can sometimes be very dry, making it engaging and, and liberal use of emojis. Probably the most <laughs> use of emojis for any kind of financial product I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. So let's start with why did you start this company? Like, what was the impetus behind this? It was a, actually a very personal experience for me. Um, Essentially, what happened was I was in my mid to late 20s um, and I was sort of reading the news and talking to my parents and everybody was like, basically, as you approach 30, you need to start saving up some money. So I took that to heart every month, put money aside from my salary onto a savings account. And then one day woke up, looked at my savings account. I was like, awesome. I have some savings. And then the immediate follow up question was, so what do I do with these savings? And I knew... Um, the inflation was higher than the interest I was getting on my savings account. So I basically was losing money in real terms. I just didn't really know what to do with it. I'd heard of all the different things that I could be doing. I've, I'd heard of robo-advisors, ETFs, etc. I'd studied economics. I wasn't like a total layman. Uh, but I found it very difficult to sort of navigate through the financial jungle. And um, as I started asking friends of mine, who a lot of them were bankers, um, what they did with their own money, I very quickly discovered that they were capable of building very complex financial models for Fortune 500 companies, but they weren't actually capable of telling me what to do with their own money. So they basically had the same problem as I had. And when I sp- spoke to a banker in a retail branch, uh, all that she did was uh, try to sell me her products. Um, and so I was kind of lost um, and I couldn't find anything online to help me sort of uh, navigate through this jungle. Um, and that was really the, the genesis moment uh, for Finimize. Um, so we started with a news product to sort of get people to think about finance um, and are using that as a platform to then expand further to help people build up their know-how. Okay, cool. And we'll cover what that platform yeah. is a little later in the sure. podcast. But maybe one of the things that we can jump into is talking about that confusion. Um, the confusion comes from all these multiple variables and how they interplay with each other, right? And then, of course, fear and greed mixed in with it. So maybe, Carl... Um, you can tell us a little bit about your background. You were sharing uh, before we started the podcast an anecdote about your time at Goldman Sachs as an analyst. Maybe you can share with us a little bit uh, uh, about what you learned from those days, but also what is making the world so anxious today? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think the, the main thing I learned from my time at Goldman was that as complicated as things seem, when you really get to the heart of it, there are probably only one or two things that actually matter and that actually make the world go round, make stocks go up or currencies go down. Half of the skill is really 
digging in to find what those two or three things are or one or two things are. And it, yeah, it's, it's difficult. You need a lot of data. Um, you need a lot of patience. But once you're there, I think it opens up a whole new way of thinking. And so if you think about what's making the world go around right now, it's, it's probably two major things. It's the fear about whether we're going into a recession and what that means for the global economy, what that means for companies, what that means for people's own investments. And the other is what the heck is going on politically and is that going to accelerate us to an, towards a recession and all those other fears or is it going to keep us further away from a recession? Yeah. All right. Well, let's play with those ideas. When, what is a recession in terms of official nomenclature? Because uh, I've read different things about like a recession is officially six months where the trend is negative and, you know, this, there was this sort of decline in the stock markets from December, November last year till maybe Feb this year. And then now it seems to have mostly recovered. And so it's unclear whether that was just a pressure release. Maybe you can, for the listeners, you can walk us through a little bit of a, a very quick glossary of yeah. what is a recession? How do we know we're in one? What are the variables that dictate it? And is it, in, is it, uh, limited to one geography, like for example, there's talks about Brexit generating a recession for the UK, or is it global? Or maybe just add some some color to that. And maybe we just to add to that, maybe we can also distinguish between what's a recession and what's a bear market, because that's something we've been discussing internally as well, which yeah. often gets used very mm. synonymously. Great. So a recession technically is when you have two quarters, so two periods of three months, where the economy shrinks compared to the period prior. So in your question, you said, is it six months where the economy shrinks? In a word, yes. Now, that's for a single economy. Um, so the Eurozone would count as one, but so too would Germany on its own, the UK would count on its own, the US would count on its own, and so on. Where the interconnectivity comes in is that if you have, let's say, Germany in a recession, it's, such a, it's the biggest economy in Europe. And so it's unlikely that Germany's shrinking for an extended period isn't going to drag down other European economies with it. And if Europe is spending less money overall and that's shrinking, maybe the UK starts to shrink too because there's less demand for its products and services and so on. So it can sort of spread a bit like a virus around the world. And we saw that, you know, 10 years ago with the financial crisis. On the other hand, stock markets work by figuring out what assets, what companies are worth today based on future expectations. What tends to happen is when we see data that suggests we're going into a recession and all of that data is backwards looking, stocks react today. And so before we hit that six months, that means, hey, we're in a recession, stock markets have already fallen. And that's what, you, to your question, again, at the start of the year, sorry, at the end of 2018, stock markets fell pretty aggressively, in expectation that a recession wouldn't be far off, in part. So those two things are linked, but different. And a lot of people get confused by the term bear market, as Max said. That's another sort of technical term that often gets thrown around. Now that's where stock market falls 20% from a recent high without any sort of recovery. So if, you, for instance, if, if it fell 19%, but then rose another four, you, you still wouldn't be in a bear market. But if you fell 21% and rose 1% afterwards, you would be in a bear market. Mm. And again, those two things are related, but not the same. And one tends to follow the other mm. if stock markets and investors mm. are correct. So is it fair to say 
a bear market by definition always comes before a recession? Not, not always, but probably. Um, or to put it another way, most recessions, a bear market will happen before most recessions. But just because there's a bear market doesn't mean there's a recession mm-hmm. coming. Okay. So, yeah. I know that if we make the entire podcast about doom and gloom, I think people will be switching off. Or some will stay on because, you know, we all love like a little dystopian future. You know, that's why Mad Max movies do so well. So maybe what we can do is we can quarantine the, the recessionary talk and then do some, some positive sort of traction. Um, but I still want to keep on digging on the recessionary a little longer. So I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you, where do you think the world's going in the next year? Based upon everything that you've seen, seeing include variables, you know, like the Trump factor, you know, there's all sorts of talks about, you know, the, the stability of that, of the U.S. government, plus, you know, uh, anything having to do with uh, China and, and potential reduction of the economy there, plus Eurozone decline uh, production, plus on top of that Brexit. Like what if you had to have a crystal ball and, and you know, we, we, uh, we held you to it a year from now, what, what do you think is going to play out? So there are a lot of opinions out there. Without that, you wouldn't have a market. And so whatever I say, I'm almost certainly going to be wrong. But I think my opinion is we're going sideways for the next year. And what I mean by that is maybe if I take each major region in turn, in the US, just to look backwards before we go forwards, 2018 had lots of great stuff. It had the benefits of tax cuts, which made it, you know, uh, made people richer because they weren't paying as much tax, made companies a bit richer, gave them more money to reinvest in growing their businesses, boosting stock markets. You had unemployment in the US hit record lows. More people in work, earning more, paying less tax means more spending, which again hits companies, profits up, stock markets up. You had that for most of 2018. Mm-hmm. You don't have that in 2019. Tax cuts are over. And more, it doesn't seem like more are going to come. Employment's pretty good, um, but it's not going to get. It's not going to improve as much as it did, as it did last year. Mm-hmm. And of course, you've got this trade war. And in the worst case scenario, the U.S. economy starts to shrink at the end of the year because tariffs, which make moving products between the U.S. and China and China and the U.S. more expensive, will ultimately lower profit growth and therefore stock prices will also slow down the economy. Did you have any thoughts on that, Max? So that was for the US specifically or was that globally? So that was... Or actually, sorry, if I can rephrase that question, because we get this a lot from our users where they, where they complain, European readers complain, oh, you guys only report about America, but I'm, I'm, I'm based in Europe. Um, so maybe you can touch on that when answering my question. Is, it, is this an American phenomenon or is this a global phenomenon? So it's global. Most of the market caps and most of the value of companies in the world is in the US. It's about half. So when the US sneezes, the world catches a cold. It's, it's as simple as that. So what that means is the US economy slows, so too will Europe. And it's the point but, I'm... But why? So it's the point I made earlier when we were talking about Europe, Germany, and, and recession, in that if Germany shrinks and Europe shrinks, its, ma- its major trading partner, for one, the UK, may also shrink. Um, the US and Ch- uh, sorry, the US and Europe trade loads between each other. So if the US economy is shrinking and it's buying fewer things, its companies are buying fewer things, the, the seller of those things, in a lot of cases, is Europe. Those companies there, those governments there, 
aren't getting as much demand for stuff. And so whatever's happening in the US reverberates into Europe, less demand, weaker economic growth, and so Europe might start to shrink. And similarly with China, you know, China's responsible for about a third of the European economy. And you're seeing that right now in that China's economy's growth is still super high, but slowing. Exports are dropping partly on the back of ongoing tariffs with the US. And yes, it seems like there might be a deal, but let, let's sort of see what happens and how important that ultimately ends up being. And consumer spending is down in China as well. Now, the, to bring this back to Europe, the biggest export market for Europe is China. If you think about luxury cars that come from Germany, if you think about luxury handbags that come from France, um, Italy, to, to name a few countries. If China's spending less because of its beef with the US, Europe suffers. Mm. It's, all, it's all connected. So, you know, to, to, to your question, sometimes we don't have the word Europe in the subject line or in the headline, but everything bounces around to Europe. And if you're a European investor and you turn around and the stock market's down on a given day and you can't find an obvious reason, it's probably the US or China. So I want to play around with the, uh, the idea that you brought up, Max, earlier in the, in the podcast about uh, somebody who is somewhat financially literate, trying to make sense of this stuff. They do it on their day job. They hear these variables that Carl brought up and they're like, yes, I kind of get it. They're all interconnected and I get that this one um, is, is affecting that one. But as you take the skills that you have as somebody who's financially literate, you still end up with analysis paralysis. For example... You know, you're thinking, okay, well, should I use, and, and this is excluding a robo-advisor, but we will get to that in a second. They're trying to manage their money and they're saying, okay, well, I could put my money and my savings into stocks, but those stocks are all over the map because of the factors that Carl just brought up. And they're most likely to be the most volatile thing in the short term because of all these uncertainties. And then the alternative is, oh, I'll put it in bonds, which are you know available through, through robo-advisors and other platforms like Vanguard and whatnot. But those are made up of corporate debt, which is largely also affected because if the companies that are represented in those corporate debt bonds are unable to pay at some point in the future, you end up in the same situation. You just probably have a little bit more security. You have governments which are backing some of these things, but you know some of the best bonds in the world are by economies like the UK, which are now uncertain with, with what's going on geopolitically there. So... You know, you end up in the situation where you're confused. Like, what do you use? What product do you use? So maybe jumping a little bit into some of what Finimize promises to do, taking all that uncertainty Carl brought up, how does that materialize itself in terms of an investment strategy from you know the time that you've been putting into it? I know that you haven't launched the platform yet, but how does that materialize itself into a strategy amidst lack of clarity? So the way that, that we look at it is we look at this, the journey that somebody undergoes or, you know, the, basically that I underwent as well when I uh, had the problem that led me to start Finimize. Uh, and we kind of break it down to three pieces. We, we say, okay, first of all, you need to have a general awareness of what's, what's, what's happening in the world and in, in, in the finance world. And we think that news is a great product for that. And then the, the second piece is uh, financial understanding. So you need to be able to evaluate what are the different investment options even available to me. And then the third piece is obviously you want to take action. So our view is that we can help you with people like Carl and, and the rest of our content team with the first two phases. So we can help increase awareness. We can help you understand what options are available to you. Um, and for the, for the understanding piece, we actually did launch um, a product called 
finomized packs, which explains exactly what you just talked about. So you can uh, read a pack on, hey, what are the investing basics? Or you can read a pack on portfolio construction, whatever you are interested in. Um, and we explain it to you in the classic Finomize style without the jargon, etc. Um, and you can read it or you can listen to it by audio in our app. And we then sort of design these journeys where people can say, hey, I am not invested today. I want to start investing or I have a robo-advisor, but I now want to start investing um, myself more actively. And so we design these journeys for people. We uh, present them with the relevant packs and then we let our community interact with each other and help each other out. We found that content and tooling can only go so far. And the social interaction where you start asking, you know, when, when you start making an investment, the likelihood that you've asked your friends or, or, or people that you respect um, for their opinion, what they're doing is, is quite high. And we, we see that quite a lot with our, with our uh, community members. Um, and so we do that on a, on a digital platform where we let users interact with each other, help each other out uh, and recommend stuff to each other. Uh, and we kind of just provide the platform for that. And we found that that's, that paired with the content is a very good way to help you navigate through that jungle. Um, because let's take the example of somebody who's gone from zero to invested uh, a week ago, and I'm about to go on that same journey. You're probably going to be able to help me really sort of navigate through this choice paralysis way better than any uh, tool can because you've just gone through that journey yourself. Okay. So it sounds like a large part of what Finmice is doing is connecting people that are going through the same journey, providing information. But let's let's break that into more bits. Carl, what what strategy would you recommend for somebody going into the market today? They just got a lump sum. They just earned a hundred thousand somehow, you know, legally, hopefully, and <laughs> they just want to move that money. They don't want to have it sitting eroding because uh, inflation is is killing it. What would be, in light of what we've just talked about, what would be the ideal strategy? So I think there are two options. The first is the safe smart, probably easiest thing to do, which is to have no strategy. Well, I'm going to stop you there one second. I'm, I'm going to do you a favor and, and you a favor. Guys, this is not official financial advice. Please seek the advice and counsel of a certified financial advisor. No information here should be used and any money loss is not the responsibility of neither seed camp wow. nor Finimites. <laughs> you memorized that before, didn't you? <laughs> capital at risk. Hashtag capital at risk. Yeah. Okay, yeah, exactly. Go ahead. But please. no, the, 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 the simple... The simplest thing to do is have no strategy. And what I mean by that is the value of assets rises over time. So if you have a diversified portfolio across stocks, bonds, whatever else, um, including maybe some riskier things that's appropriate for your long-term goals, then sit back, relax, maybe buy a robo-advisor, maybe just do it yourself. And over time, you will likely make better returns. Now, the second and maybe more spicy option is if you have $100,000 pounds and yes, you want to invest for the long term, but you want to be really active and you want to be nimble and you want to try and you know, outperform the market. There are a few pots right now that might make sense to look at. If you look at what major investors are doing, um, the ones who are investing in stocks are investing in what we'd call um, defensive stocks. What I mean by that is ones where you've got a long line of sight on how much money they're making and when. So that's utilities, where you pay for your gas and your heat, electricity, and you're tied into a contract. Telcos, same thing for mobile phones and broadband and so on. Uh, another group would be healthcare, because 
even if the economy falls apart and you're, you haven't got two pennies to rub together, you still need your medicine and you'll pay up for that. They're also buying bonds of similar companies and of governments because, again, in this uncertain time where we might be going sideways as politics plays out, you know what you're getting there. Now, those might not be the most you know, sexy returns, but for someone who wants to take action, they, you know, they're, they're following investors. And the other thing to note, I think, is cash. A lot of investors are putting more money into cash um, rather than stock markets. And even though the stock markets have risen this year, actually investors overall have taken money out of the stock market. So go figure. Um, real estate? Yeah, real estate's always a good shout historically. I mean, it's, it's expensive to get into. If you're talking about traditional buying or buying to let, you need a ton of cash. So if you've got 100K, maybe that's something to look at. You own the property. Over time, property values tend to rise, Brexit notwithstanding, and you can make money along the way from rentals. And there are a few property platforms that let you, if you've got, if you want to put less money into property, buy shares of property or shares of debt of property. Um, and again, generally, generally a good shout mm. for most for most investors. Great. So if we play with that in the context of a robo advisor, um, you know, you kind of mentioned that at the beginning, right? So you gave two options, right? The second one is probably beyond the scope of this podcast because it's, it's probably going to shift day to day. It's probably going to be a function of people's net worth. And that's what the what created the, the birth of the robo-advisor, which simplified a lot of the stuff for people, right? And, and I've played with several of them, so we can kind of hopefully educate the people who aren't familiar with them, but also at the same time, maybe delve into the nitty gritty of a few of them, right? There's like WealthSmart, WealthSimple, Nutmeg, and many others like... Um, there's some that even now have uh, quite a bit of customization, which almost border, borders on um, almost being able to stock pick on a sector basis. But then there's the other extreme, which are like the old stalwarts, which are moving into the space, you know, like click, click and uh, invest from Investec and also uh, the Vanguard funds, you know, life strategy funds, and which maybe didn't originally start looking like a robo-advisor, but, you know, increasingly do look like one. So maybe what you can do is is help us understand what a robo-advisor does, firstly, how it is that they determine risk. Because if you look at most of them, it's there's like these buckets of risk that they have identified. Some use numbers, some use labels, and it's a mix of bonds and stocks. And how is, how is it that um, they outperform or underperform each other if, in fact, a lot of them are using a standardized form of risk? So on the first question... What do robo advisors do? Mm-hmm. That's that's relatively simple. What they do is they take your money, invest it across a number of different assets using algorithms and questionnaires to determine how best to do that for you. Now, how they try and figure that out is to to measure your risk appetite, and that's a function of age, when you want your money back, usually, which is a question around when you want to retire, and how risk tolerant or reverse you feel personally. Um, The idea being a 20 year old can take more risk today because if they lose money in the short term, they have longer to make it back. Whereas a 60 year old hasn't got long at all to make as much, uh, to to afford to take the risk of losing money. Mm -hmm. Those things generally come together to give you a risk profile and determine how the robot then allocates funds um, for you. Now, on your second question about how they do that matching. So you you mentioned this earlier, stocks are more risky than bonds. And that's something you sort of just know. But how you can, I guess, mathematically prove this 
is to look at something called volatility, which is how much do the values in these things in stocks or bonds swing over a period compared to one another? Um, and the short answer is the more something is able, able to move around on a given day, the more likely it is to go up a lot or down a lot. So high risk, high reward, potentially. So things that are generally high risk, which would be you know, cryptocurrency at the crazy high end and short-term government bonds at the low end all have varying degrees of volatility. And again, these platforms use clever algorithms to match you to, uh, well, to match the asset classes to those levels of risk and volatility mm -hmm. and then to match you appropriately. Mm -hmm. And then the third point on how different robo-advisors can outperform one another, it's two, it's two reasons. One's location. If you are a Brit using a robo-advisor, you are likely to have more of your stocks allocated towards the UK or Europe or both versus an American using the exact same robo-advisor will have more of their stocks allocated to the US and less to Europe. And you want to walk the audience why, why is that the case? Because in a world where stocks are purchasable almost globally, um, and you know, I, I know part of the answer has to do with currency efficiency, but it, you, would, you would think that by now, world advisors have figured out a way of, of making that a little bit more neutral. But maybe you can walk us through that for, for an average listener. And maybe to add to that, because um, we actually did quite a deep dive analysis. I don't know if you have the numbers off the top of your head. Um, but we looked exactly at what, what the robo advisors that you mentioned, what exactly do they invest in? Um, so maybe you can throw that in there because I thought for me that was really interesting. Yeah, so I think yeah, one reason is currency efficiency. It's also currency risk. So if you think about what the robo advisors are doing in the first instance, it's trying to assess your risk and then appropriately match it. Now, if I've got risk of I'm just going to put a number out there. Five mm -hmm. out of ten, I can invest however the algorithm determines. As soon as you then put more of my money outside of my home currency, mm -hmm. that's that's moving my risk to six or seven, depending on where. Simply because there's the efficiency aspect, which saves them money, which is fine, but let's put that to the side. But it's now, you know, if the dollar gets stronger or weaker, or the euro gets stronger or weaker the value of my investments change, even though I haven't necessarily consented to that additional risk. So that's one reason to put you more in your domestic currency or local currencies, because they're less likely to fluctuate. Yeah, the pound and the euro don't fluctuate as much as the euro and the dollar, for instance. Um, and the other, the other reason is what they actually own. So, and this is getting, this is gonna get a little bit like Inception, so bear with me. Um, let's say a robo-advisor owns 60%, there are two identical, let's say a robo-advisor has 60% US stocks and another robo-advisor also has that. Yeah. Let's say robo-advisor A buys those US stocks via a Vanguard ETF that tracks the S&P 500. Yeah. And the other, uh, robo-B, does it via Fidelity index fund that ETF that tracks the S&P 500. Now, they both should be doing exactly the same thing, but if you go a level deeper, each of those ETFs may not perfectly track the S&P 500 because rather than well, what they are doing is effectively, and it's, I'm simplifying it a bit here, going up, 
buying equal amounts of all of the stocks in the S&P 500, building a bucket of however much it is with you know, four and a bit percent Apple, three and a bit percent Microsoft, three percent Amazon, all the way down to the smallest company in the right proportions. Yeah. And those companies' values change every day. And so as best as, it, as best as these guys might, they're not exactly going to rebalance and get the right amounts in. And sometimes that works to an investor's advantage. You might do a little bit better than the overall market on average. Sometimes it works the other way around. And so those small differences between funds and therefore between robo-advisors can start to add up if you do that across several hundreds of funds that various robo-advisors might be investing in. Mm. Take that together with currency and you can see pretty divergent performances, even if you've got very similar investing patterns. And, and you mentioned, Max, that you had done a, um, a review, maybe internally, of how different um, robo-advisors have performed. Do, are you, is it too cheeky a question to ask you to list that? Or? Well, we actually uh, have it in, in, uh, on our platform. Uh, where we track all the different performances of the different robo-advisors and we have actually started collecting um, reviews from our own user base um, where users tell us how happy they are with their robo-advisors. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head for the returns. I think they were all fairly similar. And then if you compare it within a country and then if you compare the UK versus the US, the US were doing way better than the UK robo-advisors in terms of returns. Mm -hmm. So like a Betterment Wealthfront was doing way better than the equivalents here. And that's largely because of that local yeah. bias, because today's actually uh, the 10-year anniversary of the longest bull market in history. Um, so since March 8th, 9th, 2009, US stocks are up about 400%. Mm -hmm. In Europe, that's only 200 So... You can see if you've been investing in the US. But doesn't that then way contradict then what you were saying earlier? That you, that if I'm a UK-based investor, um, wouldn't it have been better if my robo-advisor would have invested in the US then? In hindsight, yes. But if it had gone the other way around, Fair point. for an American, Fair point. you're, you're you know, very happy. Hmm. If, if the American investor had been in Europe, they're going to be kicking and screaming. So, so maybe this is a dumb question, but... Why has there not been, is it just fees, but why has there not been a robo-advisor that buys uh, future currency contracts and builds into the cost of the fees, the, the inclusion of any equity in the world that's doing well so that you're tracking the best of the best without you know, the, these sort of limitations that are geographically ring-fenced? I suspect, other than the cost, it's to do with the, the human capital required. Because you can absolutely do that with machinery. Mm -hmm. But in order to know what's performing best and whether it's a longer-term trend versus a short-term trend, you need analysts. And again, you can do that partly with a machine, but then you're doing something basically called momentum trading, which mm -hmm. is following whatever what's happened before. And all of a sudden, you can quickly find yourself in a very different business where you're becoming an algorithmic trading platform, taking a lot of risk, more, or at least more so than you intended versus a robo-advising platform. Mm -hmm. Or you become you know, some sort of hybrid fund with a bunch of analysts trying to pick stocks, at which point you're turning into a hedge fund, which has much higher fees. Mm. And maybe the last controversial question on this, 
there was an article written about how robo-advisors are popping up left and right and therefore creating an inflation pressure on the value of uh, the stocks that they, they pick or the ETFs that they pick. So it's almost like the very popularity of it skews the market towards the things that they can and cannot buy. And therefore, the people who are participating are at higher risk than they perceive that they're in because they're inflating their own bubble, if you will. Is that for robo-advisors or for ETFs? Or for for robo-advisors because they, speak, they pick a specific type of ETF as opposed to ETFs yeah. as a whole. Yeah, it's funny you asked that. We actually wrote about that this week. Um, we were sort of saying it, it seems as though there are sort of magical stocks that go up more than the others and fall less than the others. And... Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a phenomenon whereby the most the stocks in the most popular ETFs are in gross demand when money's going in because people buy when markets are going up. And on the way down, ETF holders are slower sellers than single stockholders. And again, it creates a sort of cushioning effect. Yeah. I don't immediately see how that translates to higher risk or uh, than people are aware that they're taking. Mm. If anything, those stocks implied volatility is lower, which means they should be lower, all else equal. But there's certainly, I think those mechanics are well understood by certainly big institutional investors. Mm -hmm. uh, the risk is that retail investors don't quite understand how those things work. And so the normal person thinking, I'm going to pick this stock, might get burned. Also, I think there's a question of scale of, the, of these robo-advisors. I think if you really zoom out, they're actually quite small. Mm -hmm. uh, my, I think the most mind-blowing statistic that I saw there was that Vanguard, I think every three to five days, roughly, takes in the total amount of assets under management of Betterment or Wealthfront. Every three to five days. I wonder really how, how much impact a robo-advisor has given the fairly small scale compared to these larger players like a Vanguard, Fidelity, etc., BlackRock. Well, the, the article was uh, regarding that a lot of these robo-advisors buy the Vanguard product. Yeah. So it wasn't so much that they, as an aggregate, were, were meaningful. It was that their purchasing is a Vanguard product. So basically, basically, I think the article pointed at Vanguard as being like, they control such a large part in a way that people don't realize because they, they, they buy and group things. But, but you know, it, it, is, it is a funny area and, and robo-advisors have done a lot of good will. How much of what you see the future of Finimize being is on increasingly building uh, products around robo-advisors or more automated investing versus targeting customers that are more likely to want to do it themselves. So we, I mean, we're, we're not setting out to build our own products or to build it, to take people's money. We're here to help people navigate through this financial jungle. Um, what we're seeing, and this is, anecdotal obviously but what we're seeing is this progression of people um, or pe people's investing habits so they use they typically start out going from zero to invested by putting money to a robo-advisor they then educate themselves a bit more and and really understand what a robo-advisor does and then often not always but often then we see these same people saying okay actually why the hell am I paying this robo-advisor fee? I can just do this myself. And they start investing into a Vanguard ETF life strategy fund, for example. Um, and once they've done that, then they start looking at more sophisticated stuff like, hey, I really want to now with 10%, let's say, start picking some stocks or start going to crypto or peer-to-peer. -peer. Uh -huh. And so we see this like progression uh, almost uh, of, of, of people going down that route. I think what we're definitely seeing with this millennial demographic is that people have 
they want to understand where their money is going. And I think the risk with a lot of these role um, propositions is that it can seem like a black box. So the fact that we had to dig in to un- really understand what did th- where did they actually put the money, that that's not super obvious to the end consumer, I think is a great indicator that people aren't really understanding where the money goes. And, and hence, there's a little bit of this sort of like uncertainty, like, is this really the right thing for me? And I think this sort of general curiosity of, of uh, understanding finance, I think, is something that specifically with the millennial demographic we're seeing. So maybe to, to talk a little bit about the Finimize product and, and the content you guys generate, uh, you uh, mentioned before we started recording, I'm not going to mention it because I want you to mention it. It's your, it's your good story to tell, the new partnership that you've announced. Um, and what does that mean in terms of the, the credibility of, of Finimize and where does that, what's that mean in terms of what your goals and ambitions are? Yeah, so maybe I'll, I'll start with the, the latter part of the question. What, what is our goal and ambition? I think the way we think about um, what we're building is, um, the first of all, the problem that we're trying to solve is uh, for young professionals, but essentially for everybody who have some savings and don't know where to invest them. The problem I had uh, that I was laying out earlier. And we want to build for the financial well-being space what Nike has done for physical well-being, and you're now seeing Calm Headspace doing that for mental well-being. Uh, but building a, a really strong brand that people trust and are inspired by. And ultimately, we want to help solve the CEO of BlackRock at the end of last year described as the biggest problem in the world, which is the lack of financial literacy. And so we, as I was alluding to earlier, we have these three different sort of components. First is the news product. Second is the, the Finimize PAX product. And the third is uh, the community element. And for us, content is, is, is at the heart of what we're doing. And, and as you mentioned, we um, just started a... a collaboration with uh, the Bank of England. Um, so we um, are sort of co-producing content. They're, they're using some of our content for their own platforms uh, and we're using some of their content on our platform. And, uh, you know, for a startup like ourselves, that's obviously a huge uh, sort of testament to the quality of the content that uh, Carl and his team put out uh, every single every single day. And another sort of testament to that is always we see a lot of fairly senior finance people on Wall Street or also here in the city uh, reading our content every single day. Um, so it's, it, it can seem like a simple product, but the substance that we try to put into it, into the content specifically, um, is really, really what we focus on and put a lot of em- emphasis on. That's great. And, and it sounds like, Carl, you're leading up the, the part of the content team. And, and what are the goals that you guys have for content on a daily basis? I mean, how do you scour that? I mean, your newsletter is so punchy. You know, you must have tons of stuff that you need to curate what is it that people that read it are getting in terms of why that's relevant today yeah i think there's there's no shortage of news on a given day but if you think back to what i said earlier about what i learned at goldman is that there are only ever two or three things that are driving markets that are drive that, that matter in a given day and so i think the first port of call is okay what actually matters and then it's digging a bit deeper and once you decide something does matter, how do you explain this in the most interesting and succinct way possible? And once you've done that, why do people care? What's, what's the actual thing that I can go and do with this, with this update, with this piece of information? And we try and do that every single day in, in the newsletter. And then when we think about the packs, it's, it's very collaborative. Our community will say, hey, I need to know more about this. I need to know more about option, options trading. I'm a markets pro and I really want to get into it. Mm. T- teach me how, teach me what I need to think about. Mm. Or somebody might be thinking, 
I'm relatively early in my journey. How do I choose the right ETF? Mm-hmm. And we'll go away and we'll, we'll do the work. We'll put the packs together. We'll ask the community. We're like, hey, here's what we're thinking. Are there any other questions, having read this, that we should go back and answer before we even get to the end of it? And there it's, what can we, the question we're asking ourselves is, what can we tell these guys that you know, makes them smarter, makes them more informed, but also empowers them to make a decision? Um, even, that, even if that decision is not to invest at all and to, like Max was doing, um, lose money because your, your set current account is paying you less than inflation, that's fine, but just do it from a position of strength rather than indecision and a lack of knowledge. Yeah, fair enough. Now, one thing we haven't even covered, hasn't come up at all, is commodities like gold. Where, where is Finimize's view of including alternative store of value that classically have been used to park money and not stocks and, and bonds and real estate? I think that's a great example of, of, of a pack, right? I mean, you probably can tell more about that than I can. Yeah, I think gold in particular is interesting because, yeah, you're right. It's been classically a store of value and you'll see countless articles if you Google it saying investors are buying gold, they're nervous. Investors are selling gold, they're buying stocks instead. But I think maybe what's more interesting is some of the sort of harder commodities um, what I mean by that is like, metals like copper and, and iron ore that you know, go into buildings and, and things like that. And, you know, we were talking about the economy earlier. One of the great indicators about the strength of the economy is the prices of those things. Because when China's economy is doing well, or the US or Europe, anyone's doing well, they build more, they invest more in, the, in their infrastructure. That means there's demand for copper um, rising. And typically, if supply isn't rising as quickly, so too does, does the price. And you know that's been, if you look at certainly the back end of 2018 when it was all doom and gloom, those prices fell. But now you're seeing certain metals pick up and that just shows you how the, globe, the entire global economy is shifting. So palladium, for instance, which was like gold's forgotten ugly cousin, <laughs> has you know, shot up and I think it's actually worth more than gold these days mm. um, for, for an ounce. And that's because of its use in catalytic, catalytic converters, because of certainly in Europe, diesel gate and having more efficient engines, but also its use in you know, electric cars of the future and, and so on. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff going on there. Um, and it's just, I think, yeah, they're fun because they give you a sense of the, what, the global economy without having to dig through loads and loads of numbers. Great. Well, that's helpful. And Max, do you reckon that Finimize will ever become a wealth manager? I think the way we think about it is if, if we can't offer a unique proposition um, to, to the end consumer, then why even bother? And I think coming back to, the, to, to some of the products that we mentioned earlier, you're starting to see also commoditization of some of these propositions. Like how do you distinguish between certain robo advisors? Yeah. So we don't, we don't really want to enter that game. I think where we can see ourselves uh, is perhaps one day having sort of a, a physical space where kind of uh, I like to picture it or imagine it like what Apple did with the genius bar. Mm. Like if you could build a genius bar for financial advisors and then let our users with sort of, we know a little bit about them through their users or the app mm. come in and, and have a bit of a modern experience uh, for wealth management. I think that's something that we could imagine ourselves. We aren't really aimed at now building a robo advisor or, or, or product like that. Mm. Um, we, we don't think there's a need for that. Uh, mm. 
Well, you guys probably go out to a lot of dinner parties and you probably get hounded for investment advice. What, what are the, the funniest questions you've ever been asked at, at a dinner regarding you know, what you do or, or investment advice? This is a bit of a long anecdote, but I think well worth hearing. When I interviewed for an internship at Goldman Sachs, I was asked to pick a single stock that I would buy. The stock that I pitched was a company most people might have forgotten of by now, but it was called Palm. Um, they made effectively the first ever smartphone. They were struggling. They had two failed phone launches and they were about to launch the Palm Pre. And my thesis was buy this stock because one of two things is going to happen. Either the Palm Pre is going to take off or it's going to fail and someone's going to buy them because a lot of the technology that powers smartphones today was patented by them, and so it has to continue to exist somewhere. I was right, it got bought. That had nothing to do with my interview success, because the guy who was interviewing me didn't disagree. But a year later, when I went back as a full-time employee, I had the same view on BlackBerry. Um, or back then it was called Research in Motion. And so I thought, heck, either BlackBerry's gonna knock it out of the park, or someone like Apple's gonna acquire them because all the smartphone security technology lives in BlackBerry's company. And I remember being at a dinner party probably six months into my job at Goldman, thinking I knew everything about everything. Of course, I knew nothing about most things. Sitting there telling people, yeah, this is a slam dunk. I can, ca I can call big acquisitions. I did it last year. I'm, a, I'm an absolute rock star. Obviously, that didn't happen. And BlackBerry sunk further and further and further. And yeah, I quietly sold my stock and never mentioned it again. <laughs> Until today. Until well, today. public knowledge. <laughs> no, we all make those mistakes, you know? Or sometimes we sell too early, which is yeah. like when things go wrong yeah. and then they recover, you know? And it happens in venture all the time. Yeah. Um, any, any one from you, Max? Uh, I wish. I don't think anybody is asking for investment <laughs> advice. Uh, I'm usually one, the one asking, uh, yeah. which kind of got me into, in, into Vinomas, really, because I started asking friends who really know what they're doing. I was like, that's kind of cool. Like if I could sort of do that at scale, that's really interesting. So like take Carl's brain and just distribute it to the world. Yeah. Well, you know, you know how um, clickbait has these amazing headlines that make everyone, you know, tempted to click, hence the name. Uh, and one of them is always like three habits that successful people do every day, you know, yeah. that, that kind of every morning. Yeah. Now, because you do get to talk to a lot of people in this space, uh, let's, let's ask a clickbaity question. Like what are now since your journey started um, on the basis of I want to get better at this specific thing. It's solving a problem for yourself. Now you know a year two in into my story. What are the three things that you have seen the people that are most successful from your exposure in the platform do every day as part of managing their wealth? I think I'm not sure I can give three. I think there's uh, one main thing that. Uh, so, so we have a few investors of ours um, come from the financial advice space. And so I ask them always the question, okay, so, you know, what, what do you invest in? And uh, it's always interesting because they themselves were financial advisors and they uh, would recommend that these very sort of complex solutions. And when you ask them, pretty much all of them say, yeah, I put pretty much most of my money into Vanguard Life Strategy ETF. And that was like across the board. Um, so that was something that, that I think really sort of, uh, was an interesting insight there. Uh, so that's, so that's one thing. And then I guess the other point is, um, as Carl was saying is to sort of, 
invest in something and then sit back and don't get too fussed about it because the reality is that as an average person you're not you're probably not going to be able to beat somebody who does this full time uh, as a trader um and then i think the third thing that's that's interesting uh, which is especially one thing that uh, one of our angels who who's who was a financial advisor uh, always preaches is how do you even define wealth um and 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 how do you uh, put happiness uh, into the equation um, and I think sort of re, reframing the question of how, how do you build up your wealth and, uh, uh, and thinking about it more from a sort of a lifestyle and happiness point of view, I think that was also sort of a really nice different angle to think about it uh, that, that got me thinking and uh, got me sort of re, reassessing how I approach my own concept of wealth. Max, what, what other exciting news is coming up for Finimize for either newsletter subscribers or for people who are interested in the space? Yeah, so we are actually launching today um, the Finimize PAX subscription. Um, so you can now get access to uh, today uh, more than 20 packs and every week we'll produce a new pack in our iPhone app. Um, you can download it and buy a subscription for either $5.99 a month or $59.99 a year. Um, and you'll also get access to some very exclusive beta features that I can't mention yet, but if you do buy a subscription, then you'll see it. Um, and we then basically will we'll start building out that library. So that's something that we're launching uh, as of today. Great. Look forward to seeing it. Guys, thanks so much for joining us. It was a pleasure um, hounding you with all the questions I think everyone, including myself, have. Uh, and I continue to enjoy your newsletter. Keep up the great work. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and leave us a read with your thoughts on our show.